Thank you very much for a great uh, opening panel. And thank you for keeping the time. So if we can proceed quickly with the next panel, that would be terrific. Thank you again uh, to everyone. If I can have the panelists join uh, and Sanjeev. Great panel, thank you. So Chris, you are starting, I think, with your introductory remarks. Good morning. What a great way to start a very special week. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicholas and honored guests, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. I think as you heard from the other panel, we are in the early innings of a decade of change marked by a new language of shipping. Dollars of CO2 and greenhouse gas emission reduction per ton mile. This, in fact, introduces new boundary conditions of safety, availability, and scalability of fuels and infrastructure. It also introduces new relationships, government to government, government to industry, owners to charterers, and, in fact, ships to ports new global shipping shapers, and solution options. New transformational technologies, such as clean hydrogen and renewable power, low carbon electricity, carbon capture, and smart energy efficiency, and new technology readiness timelines. Ladies and gentlemen, the scale and the magnitude of the clean energy shipping challenge before us is daunting. To illustrate the steepness of the gradient of the curve in front of us, we need to understand the calculus to get us to net zero by 2050. To get us to net zero by 2050, we will need 70% zero carbon e-fuels, which requires 10 times more renewable energy than is currently produced, and 30% carbon neutral fuels, which will require 100 times more carbon capture than we have today. And that's if we are to achieve net zero across the board. The energy transition forces all sectors to pursue a carbon neutral energy unit, which will be provided by the hydrogen and carbon value chains. Shipping already is and will always be a fundamental player in this new energy era. Because for shipping, the challenge 
and the opportunity lie in two stories. Shipping for shipping, which is a decarbonization of our industry using alternate fuels for propulsion, and shipping for the world, highlighting shipping's pivotal role as an enabler of the global green energy transition, where shipping will be asked to carry hydrogen and carbon molecules as cargo, such as ammonia, hydrogen, or even derivatives such as liquid CO2, hence providing a central role in the transition connecting producers with consumers. These stories have many chapters, of which ships are just one. These are stories that are also about ports, about charterers, commercial relationships, and the pivotal role of public-private partnerships. This is also going to impact many decisions moving forward as we really begin to figure out what happens as CII and other decarbonization trajectories mature and introduce a new set of technology readiness timelines framed out by short games, mid games, and long games, addressing the 70-30% solution. So what is that 70-30% solution? Well, at the ship, or what I'll call deck plate level, 70% of the CO2 reduction solution is obviously with the fuel choice. But 30% of the solution is low-hanging fruit that can be addressed by capitalizing on what is available today, energy efficiency technologies and big data to drive operational efficiencies and improve vessel performance optimization. Now, we need to begin to balance what we're facing today, which is essentially how do we handle energy security relative to the short-term energy security challenge and the longer-term energy transition. Green shipping corridors and clean energy marine hubs bring all of the pieces of this puzzle together and address the challenges of a diverse, disaggregated, and globally regulated industry with carefully collaborated ecosystems designed to deliver success at scale and pace. The future they offer is an interconnect, interconnected network of clean energy hubs and transportation pathways with decarbonized maritime supply chains that provide a low carbon footprint for all types of cargo and passenger transportation. By beginning to lay out and develop a timeline for technology readiness and maturity, industries can in fact identify strategies, transformational technologies, and pathways that will drive these decarbonization efforts. This will be achieved by using a wide range of technologies. One of these foundational technologies will be simulation and visualization which, in fact, ABS has developed specifically for modeling and optimizing all types of complex maritime operations, including for applications such as green shipping corridors and clean energy transportation corridors. These initiatives require advanced analysis beginning at the pre-feasibility pre stage through the full life cycle of corridor development. With assets and operations from multiple stakeholders and a wide range of operational 
policy and regulatory issues to consider. Simulation and visualization and optimization tools are ideal for providing critical analysis that accounts for uncertainties of the many variables affecting corridor designs. The simulation offers the fidelity of a digital twin or digital sandbox, if you prefer, shaping key decisions, both commercial and government, across the entire range of stakeholders by evaluating a range of transition path options and alternative future fuel scenarios to determine the best approach for a specific corridor. This includes macro-level corridor design issues with the stakeholder coalitions and stakeholder-specific decisions by fuel suppliers, port authorities, and terminal operations. Vessel owners and operators and cargo owners and shippers will all be able to work together. Green shipping corridors and clean energy marine hubs will be at the heart of any successful movement to decarbonize our industry. Of course, managing rapid technological advancement and deployment with a laser focus on safety is what will define success for us in the long run. I am proud to say ABS is playing a key role in clean energy initiatives with a maritime nexus all around the world, helping to pull together the unique coalitions required to deliver progress at pace and shine a light on the structures that will yield the best performance for all. Success in the decarbonization of our industry will be a team sport, and nowhere more so than green shipping corridors and clean energy marine hubs. Because it is together, and only together, that we can create a sustainable future for our industry. And that's what this week in Singapore is all about. Because at the end of the day, we all recognize that the future fuel, the future real fuel going forward, is all about collaboration, communication, cooperation, and partnerships. Thank you very much. Hi. Good morning, everyone. I'm Sanjeev Gupta, Strategy and Transactions Partner with EY, uh, based in Singapore. So welcome, everyone uh, who's come from overseas. I think, I think many people here are from overseas, so good. Um, so I think the uh, topic for today's discussion is a reality check on decarbonization in shipping. We have heard from the previous uh, panelists about I mean, some high-level views on decarbonization. Um, I think uh, the topic is very, very relevant, especially because 80% of the trade volumes are sort of basically managed by the shipping industry. And also very important for Singapore perspective, Mr. Kenneth, because we are the largest port in the world. And I think Singapore government is basically dealing with three challenges, being basically energy security, affordability, and decarbonization. So our focus for this topic is around decarbonization. I think I'd like to frame uh, questions around four areas, uh, which are evolving essentially the, uh, the landscape in the industry. One is around the regulation, second around technology, third around fuel mix, 
And lastly, uh, slightly not related to petrol decarbonization, but very important, is around supply shortages. And I'll perhaps start with supply shortages. Before I do that, I'd like to in introduce you to the our very distinguished panelists. Uh, on my left is Mr. Christopher Varnegi, Chairman and President and CEO of ABS. Thank you. Uh, I'm Robert, uh, uh, Robert Costas. He's the co-founder and president of Deep Sea Technologies. Thank you. Um, Mr. Frederick Penn, um, the managing director, Nord, uh, which is a business under Musk, uh, Mr. Tankers, Early Sterling, uh, the president and co-founder of uh, Mr. Marsoft, and Roger Holm, uh, the president of Varsila, Marine power. So, first question is to Mr. Christopher Winrick uh, around supply side challenges, right? I think we are seeing huge supply side challenges in the container ship industry, uh, especially with the port congestion, with the equipment shortages and capacity constraints. Maybe you may like to share your views on this first. Sure. As I had talked about, uh, we are moving forward and seeing the importance of new relationships. And one of the important new relationships that I think we will see continue to develop is that relationship between the ship and the port. I think that actually is going to be more important than ever before. Because when you do look at the regulations, shipping efficiency is going to be tied to port efficiency, especially on the supply side. And so when we look at ports, it's really interesting because as we all know, ports are basically ground zero between ships and importers and exporters. And but what are ports? Ports are basically essentially a network environment. And when you look at what's going on on the supply side relative to what is impacting port congestion, it really is into three categories. It's infrastructure, um, it is cargo handling, and it is quite frankly, the general environment, whether it's extreme weather, economic viability, or just staff shortages. And I think one of the things that's very interesting moving forward, and you see this actually in some of the more advanced ports in the world, like Singapore and Rotterdam, is then beginning to embrace, essentially, digital technology to improve efficiency and productivity. You are seeing a lot more things like connected platforms, cloud-based services, mobile apps, sensors, blockchain technology, even drones, uh, artificial intelligence. And this is very important because this is going to begin to provide essentially that mechanism to improve visibility uh, in order to begin to optimize performance. But I do want to say, just like I think Mark had said before the in the previous panel, although it starts with technology, it ends with people. People are going to be the real he heroes of any sort of supply chain uh, correction. Because quite frankly, after all, technology has no common sense, no instinct, no intuition, no personality, or no sense of humor. So it's going to be important for all of us to understand that as we begin to look at combining, even in the port supply chain problem, domain expertise with data and data analytics, we remember that the talent equation that we have lived with is starting to change. It is no longer about age, experience, and training. It is about skills and continuous learning. 
through things like visualization and through things like simulation. And this is going to be important. So when we bring in our convergent mindset, technology, economic feasibility, social responsibility, we remember that people are at the heart of it. Technology is an enabler. And it's exciting because ports, quite frankly, are ground zero in where we're moving forward. Thank you. My, ne my next question is around the, with the regulation. Uh, so this is for Robert and Frederick. Uh, so what are the significant challenges the players are facing in lieu of the new uh, regulations that have come into effect? Perhaps uh, you may decide to respond by going by the new builds as well as by the existing fleet. Yes, of course. So thank you very much. And thank you, Nicolas, uh, for the invitation. So uh, I believe that shipping faces an unprecedented technological challenge, and that doesn't only have to do with new technologies that are being developed, but more with what fuel is going to be used and in what vessels. And that has to do with the new buildings, where uh, there clearly isn't a clear path forward. And also, we don't know what the repercussions are of different decisions in the long term. Uh, but the decisions on new buildings are more of a long-term problem, but the main challenge that owners are facing today with CII is how do they manage an existing fleet? And uh, how can we evaluate an existing fleet and make decisions to improve it uh, with the, let's say, best economic output? So the main challenge that owners are currently facing is they don't uh, necessarily are aware of what the CII distribution of their fleet is. So which vessels are C, D, E, and which vessels are going to be able to uh, be good long-term investments. And the main challenge is how can we, in an 18 or 17-year-old vessel, improve it without making a major investment uh, at the beginning? And to achieve that, I think the technology and uh, what Mark said before about, uh, let's say, the new operating system uh, and shipping in the new Nokia age uh, currently being the case, is that technology is actually the only uh, current possibility that we can improve the efficiency of vessels without making a very large upfront investment. So the main challenge is how to evaluate the CII rating of different vessels and how do we make the best decisions uh, that are going to yield the best ROI uh, results according to the output that we want to, uh, to achieve. And that is where artificial intelligence uh, really comes into play. And I want to talk very briefly about the impact of voyage optimization. I'm sure that many of you have already heard uh, about the different achievements that companies have, have made by optimizing the, the voyages of their vessels. And that is the lowest hanging fruit of the moment that uh, companies can achieve uh, in order to improve the CII rating of their vessels. So achieving an 8% improvement in efficiency can be achieved by making, let's say, uh, by installing a muse duct, by installing a very expensive new paint or dry docking the vessel. But all of that is very costly and requires a dry docking of the vessel. Whereas by utilizing technology, by scanning the fleet and applying the right uh, improvement across the, the domain, we can achieve an 8 to 10% improvement and not only improve the CII rating of the ships, but also at the same time, uh, reduce the cost of fuel and the energy consumption to reach the, the port. Yep. Thanks. So 
some good points and uh, technology doesn't have humor. I think that was interesting, uh, Christopher. With, the, with chat GPT coming up, I think actually we'll see humor coming out from technology very soon, but uh, who knows, we'll see. Um, it, so I think some of the more concrete things that we've really seen coming up this year has obviously been CI and uh, the EU ETS. While the CII currently does not have any financial incentive, uh, at least not directly, then for sure EU ETS does. And I think, so what are the challenges? One thing is who benefits? So we have this triangle of the, the owners, and the charters, and the financiers. So whatever I do to improve or to follow the coming regulations, will I actually see that benefit as an owner, for instance? And I think that's the first challenge and the first complexity. Um, so for me, it's clarity. How do I get that clarity? Do I benefit or not? Once I have that and figure that out, then what is then the right path to choose? And I think Roberto, he has a good point, saying there's definitely digitalization tools that you can do. Christopher, you mentioned that uh, there's actually a number of technologies out there, also hardware, it can be done today. You also mentioned that there's a ratio between one thing is developing, defining the new fuels of tomorrow, the other thing is actually looking at efficiencies today. You mentioned 70-30, I actually think it's closer to 50-50, but let's not get hung up on, on numbers today as long as we agree <laughs> that both will play a role. And in my opinion, I think that efficiencies is not just going to be the short term. We talk about that as the short term gain. For me, I think it's also going to be the long term facilitator of us actually reaching those or enabling those green fuels and keeping uh, efficiency technologies, whether it's digital or hardware, as a core thing that we do. So. Those are the things that's required. Those are the trickiness of, of, of today. It's getting that clarity on who benefits and what to do. But the core thing here is that the business case is there. So if you start to look at all the different things, whether you want to look at hardware or software or a combination of both, actually you can achieve some quite significant results. Uh, we've seen examples of uh, being able to reduce emissions by 25% on existing tonnage today. Even with new buildings, back to your question, it's not being maximized to the extent that it could from the get-go. So there's even also scope to improve the, the vessels that comes out straight from the yard. So the opportunities are there, but you need to be aware of what can I do and how will I benefit? And then continuously look for what are the different means or levers you can do to improve the uh, business case even further. And we have some quite exciting uh, work going on, for instance, with Marsov on that to put even more financial benefits to the case. But I think, back to your question, if you ask what are the challenges, it's getting that clarity, who benefits, and what to do. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm changing gears towards fuel of the future. We heard from Mark O'Neill and uh, Nick Brown about, you know, perhaps uh, oil will stay and, uh, you know, but we are also hearing about hydrogen coming into play, ammonia, and so on and so forth. So maybe this question is to Roger. Uh, Roger, what's your view on what's the fuel of the future for shipping? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sanjay. And I guess everyone just wants one, as, as, as was said already. So um, yeah, this is the million-dollar question, or billion-dollar question in, in the room. And if I look at today, if we start from that angle, uh, the discussions today is, is really about two key items. One is as much flexibility as, as you can get, either dual fuel, multi-fuel, and then both from starting point availability or convertibility. 
then the other key discussion is, of course, how do you combine the decarbonization pathway with the financial feasibility on a timeline? And how do you make this match? Uh, and the target here is, of course, that if you are too early or too late, it's not financially good for you. So that combination is, is all the time in all discussions. Um, if I take the standpoint from today, I would say methanol starts to be the, the more normal today. We have, we have sold to many segments methanol engines today. Um, and uh, it's, it's something that we have a long experience of and the market starts to be, starts to be used to. Uh, we have also said that we will have a technology concept ready for ammonia this year and then productization starts after that. So we are not far away from an, uh, ammonia engines either. We can do hydrogen blends today and we are getting towards uh, hydrogen-ready hydrogen engines. Uh, but the key item here is, in my view, it's not technology. Technology will be there. It's about fuel availability of the green fuels. And just to put this into perspective and, and look at what this means, if we take methanol now, which has the, the biggest interest in the market today, it's, if you look at shipping using 300 million tons of fuel today, that would be 600 million tons of methanol in round figures. Green methanol 2021 availability was 0.3 million tons. And if you add to that, you have 100 million tons of methanol used for other industries that will fight for the same green methanol. And this will be the key issue, <coughs> availability of green fuels as well as the fight between the industries and, and who will get this availability going forward. So, um, long term, I think we are moving for sure into a multi-fuel, much more a multi-fuel environment if we look at where we are moving towards 2050. And that will add complexity. Then we can debate, is it 70, 30, 50, 50? I think we need all tools in the toolbox to get towards decarbon decarbonization. This is not the fight between solutions. It's to get it all in. Of course, from a shipping perspective, the more we can go towards one single fuel, the better it is from a both a technology and a cost point of view. So sorry to not bring you the billion dollar answer, but this is what, where we are today, I see. No, thank you, I guess there is no answer at the moment. It will all evolve. So uh, Ali, I'll come back to you. Uh, I'll come to you later. Maybe I have a very uh, sort of question back to uh, basically Betty <coughs> uh, Robert and, and Frederick. I think change in fuel mix and decarbonization without technology, it's not possible. So what are the emerging technologies which are supporting uh, the decarbonization in Asia? Maybe we can cover that question and then move on. Yeah. Sure. And uh, I'll give you one answer then. <laughs> <laughs> At least I'll try. No, I think, so for me, let's start by talking about, so what's the, the technology that will bring us there? And uh, I think it's important to look at what we see in the market today is that there's a lot of new technology being brought to market. There's a lot of emerging technologies, which is super exciting, interesting. We've heard some of them being mentioned already this morning, like carbon capture and what, how that can also be a, a game changer. I think that's quite interesting. I want to also just focus on the fact that there is also technologies which has been around in the market for decades and still not utilized to the fact that they actually could. And I think that's quite interesting. Why has the industry not picked up on that, especially if the business case is, uh, is good, right? So, but to answer your question, uh, what we see is it's actually gonna be a combination of technologies. 
if you start looking at it in the way of saying, okay, how can I combine a multitude of technologies, both software and hardware, then that's where you can actually make some real impact. If what we see in average is somewhere between 7 to 16% uh, you can find on almost all vessels out there. This includes new buildings as well. And if you start to combine those technologies which has a long payback time with the short payback time technologies, then you'll reach an average payback time which is interested or which is attractive. You'll probably also uh, attract investors to that kind of business case as well. So having that holistic view, not uh, going down in the alley of just looking at one technology, uh, that for me is actually the answer. So a combination of many, that's what we need to, to arrive at. Yeah, so I, I agree 100% with Frederick. It's actually a combination of technologies uh, working together to achieve the maximum uh, results. Uh, but it's very interesting because all sitters mentioned in the previous panel that are, that are first movers, then uh, followers, and conservatives in, in the technology adoption spectrum. And it's very interesting because what we found at DeepSea is that usually uh, the companies that are the first movers tend to also pay for the fuel themselves, which means they have a direct incentive with very few exceptions, such as Mr. Tadanis's Synergy, uh, for instance, uh, who charter their vessels out but actually do invest in technology. Um, I, I think that it, while it is true that hardware and software will work together to achieve the maximum results, uh, I think because any large upfront investments in a very uncertain market uh, tend to be avoided, I think the technology will actually, and I mean software technology will be the first driver, and then according to what the fuel of the, of the future is, will carbon capture, will be utilized and to what extent, will dictate the, this sort of a combination of technology with, with hardware. So I believe that, and I'll say this again as I said before, that the lowest hanging fruit at the moment, and the reason why everyone is talking about it, is actually voyage optimization and performance monitoring. It's because to make any decision going to the performance monitoring side, to make any tangible decision, you need to know exactly how the vessels are performing so that you don't make the wrong investment on the wrong vessel. And the second is voyage optimization because you're just changing the operating system, to use the previous Nokia example, you're just changing the operating system on an existing asset, and that's very, very powerful. Of course, the iPhone is a lot better than the Nokia, but also the iPhones, as they progress, the, the primary change is not actually the hardware from iPhone 1 to iPhone 13, but to a very large extent, it's actually the operating system that's making the iPhone that much better with every new release that's being made. So I think the same will actually occur in shipping as well. well where new releases of software in the voyage optimization space will allow companies to have that competitive advantage uh, over, over their peers. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, moving on to Ali. Ali, uh, you know, decarbonization theme or adoption is quite a challenging aspect, right? And it requires some transition period. So. I'd like to ask you is, you think uh, shipping companies are likely to use the adoption with investments in decarbonization, or they might take a route towards carbon credit offsets? What are your views on that? This is a great panel from my perspective. I'm surrounded by engineers, and I'm the sole economist. So I get to talk about cool stuff that is very different from the technology uh, that is accelerating the pace of decarbonization. So the key thing for that, that I think everyone has to realize 
that in addition to the technology and regulatory developments in the industry, there's also extraordinarily developments in the carbon markets that are, that are underway now. And you need to tap into those developments because those carbon markets, those buyers in the carbon markets, are going to help you fund the investments in technology as we've heard from around the table so far. The new markets that are developing now, I think several years ago, the carbon credit market became uh, noticeable in, in shipping. Uh, I think a few ship owners, to answer your question, Sanjeev, actually bought uh, carbon credits to decarbonize their operations. I think that's pretty much, uh, uh, we're past that now. I don't think that's going to provide a, a mechanism for meaningful decarbonization. What we see is, is people instead tapping the carbon markets to sell the emissions reduction that they're developing, that they're implementing, by the technologies that we've heard from uh, all, about already. And that means more money in, more uh, decarbonization going on. New markets that are now developing are a blocking, uh, sorry, booking claim markets that are going to be ways for the, the, the customers of, of ship owners uh, to take advantage of the separation of the environmental attributes from the other attributes of the fuel. And that very exciting area is being, I think, pioneered here, uh, as well as uh, by some Europeans that we're seeing taking advantage of that. And then over the next several years, we're going to see people stacking all these market opportunities on top of the tax credits that are available under the Biden uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So there's a tremendous amount of money that's going to be looking to shipping, looking to, to buy the emissions reductions that, that our industry is offering. And to be very concrete about it, we've brought about 200,000 tons of CO2 emissions reductions through that market just in the last four months with our green screen program and our clients. And we're very excited to be working with the uh, Hafen Greenheart Group uh, with, with Nord to use that as a, as, a, as a case study to show how by tapping into these carbon markets, you can actually do more to reduce your CO2 emissions so you can, you can have greater incentive to do so. This is happening right now. These markets are developing. All of you are going to be ETS traders uh, very shortly, although that's only 10% of the shipping. Uh, it's still going to be fun to trade in that uh, market. Uh, but I think the key is the technology, the regulatory change that we're seeing in the industry is accompanied by changes in market structure and dynamics that are going to offer up new funding opportunities to help us go further. Thank you. Coming back to Chris, uh, Chris, you spoke about supply side uh, aspects being basically insufficient. Maybe if we look about uh, adoption of decarbonization and related investments in infrastructure, assets, equipments, as well as in upskilling the people, right? So how can these aspects be addressed? What are players doing in on this side, and I'll also add the financing side, you know. So financing, like, uh, who are the potential financiers of this and, and the parties which can be uh, attracted to this? That's a great question. You're asking a naval architect about financial questions. <laughs> oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> Let me try to kind of um, address that, but I'm going to address it, I think, uh, a little bit differently. Let me kind of start by saying, um, if, I, if, you're a if we are ship owners, wh what is that ship owner playbook 
that they are actually looking at right now moving forward. We've got a lot of ship owners here. I'm sure you'll be able to, to, to validate that. But they're really looking at five things. What can I do immediately to reduce or optimize the cost of operations? What is my first order of uh, decarbonization strategies around the CII look like relative to whether it's uh, implementing short hanging fruit or looking at uh, impact of fuels based on uh, ship life? Because you have to remember, as, as it was said, there is no one act, there is no one answer. It's a bas there are a basket of fuel options based on ship type, size, and route. Uh, and then kind of what is my short game, mid game, and long game going forward? How do I manage my balance sheet, okay? What is the trade-off between green retrofits versus the price of a, uh, uh, selling a, a vessel? And then pilot projects. What am I doing relative to pilot projects moving forward? This becomes really important, and, and the reason why I kind of preface this is because when you look at infrastructure as a boundary condition, uh, and you look at CII, CII, quite frankly, ties all of us together, all of us, governments, ports, owners, infrastructure, ships, because, like I said, port inefficiency impacts ship efficiency. And that's going to be very important because the CII, we need basically a clarity and consistency in CII, as well as uh, we also need one language, whether it's one language for CII, one language for market-based measures, and, and, and so forth. But when you look at kind of uh, where, where owners are going, and they begin, to, and, and you look at kind of the industry, you have to remember, you look at what we have in front of us right now. If you ordered a vessel today with all the energy retrofits and managed it correctly, under the current regulations, that vessel actually will go 10 years without having another retrofit in terms of a, of a, uh, a failed rating. That same vessel, if you ordered it with LNG, we haven't talked about LNG, that's a 20-year vessel. And, green, and gray methanol, that's a 15-year vessel. So what we need to understand is we need to kind of understand how that kind of works together uh, going forward, uh, because that's going to be really important. The relationship with the charter will impact a lot of commercial decision making, probably more so now than we've ever seen before in terms of uh, financials. But from the financial perspective, there are a lot of things that we've talked about. We do need clarity and consistency in CII so that the, that the banks are basically talking with, to the same CII as the regulators moving forward. Thank you. I have one question. Uh, maybe, Chris, you can answer or it's open for anyone like to take it. This is about the change in the HSSE regulation when the new fuel comes in, when you're talking about ammonia and others. What, I mean, what do you expect there to be, uh, you know, the, the, the health and safety uh, regulation change is expected. I think looking at the new fuels, if we look at, at as I said before, methanol, methanol starts to be the new normal. And I, I foresee that on the ammonia front, which, which is more the unknown today, if, if we go back 10 years and looking at the LNG bunkering 10 years ago, that was also something new. 
we need to learn, we need to develop, and we need to make sure that this is from a, from a safety perspective is, is developing well. Uh, it can be done. It, it's, it's true collaboration. And I would like to add one more point to, to the, the development and the speed. It has been alluded to already both, both here and in the previous panel. This is not about the technologies, it then engines, future fuels, or software. This is about collaboration and people. This was said already, already in, the, in the previous uh, panel. Uh, if we look at shipping with all the different stakeholder interests, different segments that needs to work together across different, different uh, uh, operators, for this to come into a financial feasibility that works, it will require a lot of collaboration. So for me, the key here, both from a safety perspective and from a speed of implementation, it's really about people and collaboration. It's not necessarily about the technology itself. We need to break boundaries here to make this work and work together in a way we have not seen before. So we got about five minutes left. Sorry, could Sorry. I just jump on that? Sure. Uh, one of the opportunities for collaboration uh, it's not just the charters, uh, Chris, they're, they're critical. But what about companies like Microsoft or Target or Ikea? They're buying carbon credits today to offset their emissions reduction. They want to know what shipping is doing. They're part of our ecosystem, our carbon ecosystem. And I think apropos the, the, the green corridors concept, that's going to be a way of building a dialogue across a broader range of players who are often putting a lot more money into reducing their CO2 emissions via these new markets than shipping is uh, right now. So finding a way to build that dialogue is going to be a critical part of this process. I to totally agree, Arlie. Success is, at the end of the day, a team sport with everyone working. I'd like to actually just uh, kind of, uh, from my end, just mention uh, a little bit about safety, because we've talked a little bit about uh, kind of what is going on now relative to the IMO and look at and, and the various alternatives. And I just want to remind uh, everyone that, listen, historically, safety has been the mantra of our industry. Uh, and what I see moving forward is probably one of the biggest risks that we really need to address is the unintended safety consequences dealing with change. Uh, I, with this dialogue that is going right now in terms of uh, really trying to define clarity and consistency uh, with, the, with the regulations, uh, I, am, I am quite frankly very concerned because I think in the absence of a strong IMO, and we will, def we will clearly default to uh, regional regulations, but this environment creates essentially a fragmented framework uh, and, and aside from the impact on safety, quite frankly, is going to impact the cost of uh, owning vessels and, and building vessels. So we clearly need regulatory clarity and consistency. Why do we need a strong IMO? Well, we talked about everything moving forward, but let's not forget about all the things that we have in place that need to be modernized and upgraded. Solus, no one talks about Solus. Solus needs to be updated and modernized moving forward. ISM, you'll, you'll hear about that towards the end of this week, is another very, very important mechanism that needs to be updated. They all have to now, in this new environment, need to be able to fit together and need to be able to fit for a purpose. And that's why it is so important for us collectively as an industry 
to recognize that we do need a strong IMO moving forward rather than going to essentially a relatively disconnected um, uh, regional uh, regulatory framework. Thank you. Uh, we got three, a couple of minutes left, but. Sure, there's going to be an ETS trading uh, market in, the, in that regulated market the, uh, that is developing an ETS. As I say, that's going to encompass about 10% of shipping. So it's going to be a, a, a good place to, to get your practice, uh, I, I think, in the trading. The voluntary carbon markets, which are an area that, that we've spent a lot of, of time and effort in, are a distinct market altogether. And, and so the, the the billions of dollars that are trading in, in the voluntary markets will be completely different from that, different pricing. Um, uh, again, these are, are skill sets that the industry is going to have to learn to, to, to be trading in these different carbon markets that are, for some, are more relevant. I mean, the ETS may be much more relevant in, in Europe than, than it is, say, in Asia. Uh, one last question from my side, and this is for the whole panelist. Uh, we'll go start from Chris. I think uh, the uh, shipping is a global industry, and I'm not talking from Singapore angle only, uh, where I think acceleration may be at a, at a right pace in terms of decarbonization. But overall, I think decarbonization pace is slower than expected. So what are the challenges you think uh, the players are facing in adoption of decarbonization? A great question. I mean, I think as we've talked about decarbonization uh, and our journey towards clean energy transition is a we game. Uh, we haven't talked enough about this, but uh, I think that uh, from where, where we sit, I am not so sure commercial gravity alone is going to get us there. I think we really need to look really hard at uh, governments. Uh, whether it's government-to-government -government relationships, government-to-industry relationships, because I think at the end of the day, they are going to be very much a, um, um, a uh, accelerator and a catalyst uh, for all of us. Because what do governments do? Governments will provide policy, they'll provide incentives, they'll help us manage catastrophic risks, they'll provide research and development. And I think this uh, Green Corridor and Clean Energy Marine Hub concept is a wonderful example of a new and emerging uh, public-private or government industry uh, partnership. And I think as we move forward, the challenge is going to be for the governments to really begin to step up to help us create that framework, because commercial gravity alone will not get us there. Yes, of course. Uh, I'm not sure I 100% uh, agree because I, I do think that commercial gravity is the, is the primary force because what we've seen at Deep Sea, for instance, is that when the incentives are aligned, so if an owner operates their own vessels, they have a very strong incentive to decarbonize because they also reduce bunker costs. So that drives innovation and drives expenditure towards R&D and towards projects that can actually decarbonize uh, the fleet. So I think in our case, the two major uh, reasons for, for not an accelerated uh, let's say adoption of technology are first incentive alignment I think the classic problem of the industry that 
the owner owns the asset, the charter pays for the fuel, and very often uh, it's very hard to align incentives. CII is a good way forward, but I'm not certain it is uh, standalone uh, good enough. And the second is that especially with new technologies such as artificial intelligence, there isn't enough, let's say, supportive case studies that are able to support the claims that many different companies make. Uh, and, and that's, I think, the, the, the primary uh, problem. Yeah, so from my perspective, I think, so some good points. For me, and back to collaboration to facilitate clarity. So uh, there's, I mean, we talked about things that you should do immediately because it's just low-hanging fruits. I think it's, it's a matter of long-term survival as well. If you don't get started on this journey, you might get left behind. Uh, there's a big gap between what can be done and what is being done, and we need to close that gap, and I think it's through clarity, which is facilitated by collaboration. What can you do? What will be the impact? What will be the impact on the regulatory front? What's your financial impact? And then get that business case straight for yourself as an owner, for your charter, for your financier, and then put that across on the table. And then look at what are the levers you can to, to do to even further improve that business case, such as uh, carbon credits, for instance. But I think that's the way. So collaboration to facilitate clarity and then get moving. Okay. The shipping industry has decarbonized at a slightly faster pace than I expected. Uh, my expectations were pretty low, frankly. The, the, uh, uh, I think Chris said it. Talk to your charters. I, I expand a little bit. Talk to the people who will actually care about the carbon emissions that you are reducing. Find out how much they're going to pay for it. Uh, that dialogue is beginning now. It's being mediated in new markets. Uh, it's that, uh, as I say, Microsoft, Target, IKEA, they're, they're a league ahead of where shipping is now. They want to have that conversation. They want to help support emissions reductions. They realize their cargo is on ships. Talk to them, too. They'll pay for it. Yeah, to then have a, a bit different viewpoint. I was hoping for faster, faster movement than what we see today, but I think there's still hope. It requires simplicity, uh, and if you look at simplicity, it comes very much from regulation point of view, to push for uh, the clear pathways forward from a re regulatory point of view. What makes financially sense will be made anyhow. And that requires a lot of collaboration. So instead of moving towards regal, uh, regional regulations, we need to support or hope for global regulations. Then things will move faster. Thank you, everyone. That concludes the session. <laughs>